But I'm Marcus Atkinson. Welcome to Next on WQLN. I'm your host. Today we'll talk about two things. First of all, the historic gains by women in politics across the country. Uh, 20 races in particular will point out. And then we bring two special guests back on the show that uh, joined us last month from the Democratic Party and from the Republican Party to really talk about um, the, the midterms from the vantage point of both of those parties. So Robert J. Yates and Nikki Page come back to the studio today to join us, and we appreciate that. We'll start with Nikki, where she will talk to us a little bit about her thoughts on the midterms and how she saw it. Um, I'm, I'm happy. I, I see that sleeping giant that I talked about the last time that I was here waking up. Um, when you see, I heard yesterday on talk radio that this is the highest um, off-year midterm election participation since um, 1914, which is before women had the right to vote. Mm -hmm. um, so it is indeed um, historic. And I think, um, you know, in a democracy to have so few people that actually do vote is kind of a shame. And we should continually and, and at every election be seeing high turnout. Like this shouldn't be an aberration. This shouldn't, you know, in my opinion, high turnout shouldn't be newsworthy. It should just be what you do. Mm -hmm. Robert, is this the norm? A, the norm, yes. Is this a precursor of what we can expect to see for the presidential election, even before the midterms? I was under the impression and still am that this will be a monster turnout. Are you getting that sense from the midterm results? Well, it was two years ago. We had very high turnout. We had someplace running over 80% in Erie County. I expect it will be in 2020. I think we will have a high turnout because, you know, say what you will of him, Donald Trump motivates people to vote, either for him or against him. One way or the other, he does get people out to vote, I guess. Mm -hmm. So I'll stay with you before I swing it back to Nikki. One of the questions that we asked the last time you were in studio mm. was what is the other party doing that you could do better? One of the things that you and your partner at that time pointed to was the fact that they do a better job of getting people engaged and getting people involved with the process, however it was worded. What are your thoughts when you see so many minorities, women in particular, that were successful during the midterms, many of which are uh, carrying that Democratic tag? Well, I, I wasn't surprised by it. I'm glad to see the new activism, and you t we talked about outreach last time. Sunday before election, I went into church. They come out, and an hour later, there's stuff for all the Democratic candidates all over my car <laughs> and out through the parking lot. And it's like, all right, well, why aren't we doing this? But um, I, I was glad to see that there are more women getting elected. I think we're calling it now the pink wave mm. instead of the red or blue. And uh, you know, I think it's a good thing. Um, there. Overall, you know, I think everyone had forecast that the Democrats would regain the majority in the House after not having it for a few years, so that didn't surprise me. Um, a lot of the big statewide elections, like we're seeing in Florida and Arizona, were very close and still haven't fully been called a week later, so I wouldn't really say that's a real strong direction one way or the other. Um, overall, I think it was kind of a draw. I, we had the gains, you know, on one side and kept the other side and in the Senate, and uh, overall, kind of when is expected. Mm -hmm. Nikki, do you see it that way? Absolutely not. Um, <laughs> I, I think they got trounced. And, you know, I, we flipped upwards of 30 seats mm -hmm. in the House. Um, Democrats are going to be taking control of all of those, you know, committees. Um, and then just to have over 100 women in the House, um, that's going to change the state of play because women think different. Women 
work collaboratively. Mm -hmm. Women are born executives. Women can multitask in a way uh, a lot of time, and I'm generalizing here, Absolutely. I know, but uh, <laughs> that, that men just can't. Women can work when they're sick. Women work through pain. Women work without, you know, complaining about it. You sound like my wife now. Well, Hold on. Listen, <laughs> she must be a smart woman. So I'm looking forward to actually work getting done. I think with more women being there, you will see more actually getting done, uh, mm -hmm. uh, which will be a change from kind of this stagnant, like we're in Congress, but nothing's really happening except bickering back and forth. Women are like, get this done. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that will change. And I think when you look at down ballot, um, when you say, you know, well, I think it was, you know, when as expected. I don't think they expected to lose that many governorships. Mm -hmm. I don't think, you know, uh, people in St. Louis County expected to get a, a black district attorney. And, you know, we focus on Senate and we focus on the governorships. But when you look down ballot, Democrats won mm -hmm. district attorney's positions in Texas. Report. 19 black women became judges. I mean, that that is change that is actually going to affect people's lives like down here. Mm -hmm. That's that judge is the person who's going to decide whether your daughter or your son gets bail. Mm -hmm. The district attorney is going to decide whether we even file these charges or whether we dismiss them. So people are going to feel very real change on their in the day to day um, operation of their lives. Mm -hmm. So I think Y'all got beat. I understand you don't want to say that. You got to stick your... I, last time I said they're very good with staying on brand, so I understand why you have to say that, but nah, they mm -hmm. took an L. Okay, so Robert, she gave you a lot that you want. Respond to that because where the Republican Party is concerned, this does much of what she broke down, you know, I, I think echoes the thoughts and sentiments of many, many people that are listening or watching. Mm -hmm. What does this spell for the Republican Party? Is this kind of a warning sign for your party, or is it, no, we're glad to see this? Well... Um, I think the next two years will be more difficult for the Trump administration with the Democratic House. Um, you know, they're going, apparently Nancy Pelosi's up for speaker. She was speaker several years ago. I don't know if it'll be different than it was last time. Um, I am glad to see more women in leadership, although I do think I, I can multitask. We can do <laughs> some of those things just as well. But uh, um, the next two years will be very trying for the Trump administration. I'm sure there will probably be some efforts at obstructing uh, the administration or even attempting impeachment. I don't know how that's going to play out, but of course, with the Senate, that's not probably going to get anywhere. And then as we talked about, the next presidential election is now less than two years off, and I think there will be very heavy turnout that year again. It'll be very hard fought and competitive. Mm -hmm. um, the divisiveness and the polarization that the country has seen for a while now, I don't unfortunately see changing or ending anytime too soon. Mm -hmm. Staying with you for a minute, let's dissect uh, the most watched race locally, mm -hmm. and that was Dina Cola Kelly, mm -hmm. listening to Kelly on the way up on 1400, talking to Barry Dean Steinhagen. <laughs> and so QLN was one of the sponsors for the debate that we had at Mercyhurst University. Robert, I actually saw you there. Mm -hmm. uh, give us your thoughts. It was as close as I thought many of us believed it would be. Um, the we outcome, worried. I think most people were uncertain in terms of what to look for. We'll start with you, Robert. Talk about the outcome of that race. Any surprises, mm -hmm. any noteworthy learnings? Well, I'd predicted Kelly would win between two and four points. He wound up winning by four. But throughout Election Day, we kept getting, we were worried about Dina Kolig because he had come on really strong the last two or three days. He'd run some great ads. He tried to appeal to Trump voters. Um, we were getting you know, messages from calls saying, is Mike going to be able to make it tonight or not? And earlier in the evening, the results come in. He came out of Erie County with a 19 or 20 point lead, and it was neck and neck for a long time. We almost thought he had 
One, then at the end of the evening, close to 11 o'clock, the results from Butler and Lawrence County came in, and we realized Mike had won. And it wound up being, I think, 51 to 47. And Ebert Beam even got a couple thousand votes. Good for him. <laughs> so overall, it went uh, as we expected, but it was you know, a pretty dynamic time, that last election day and the few days leading up to election day. Mm -hmm. there was, it was a very healthy competition. It was very spirited and got people energized on both sides. And Dean Nicola did very well for himself. Mm -hmm. Nikki. Um, well, you know, in the interest of full disclosure, I was, a, you know, a supporter of Mr. Dinacola, like without reservation, um, just because I, I had come to know him to be a good man. And for me, if you're a good person, you that it should follow that you would be a good uh, public servant. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I was, you know, sad that he didn't win, but it was very close. And I think that is heartening um, that the Republican Party and that the Mike Kelly campaign was clearly shook a little bit. They were a little scared because it should not have been that close. Um, and, you know, I think it, the results tell us something about, you know, the attitudes of, of Pennsylvanians that mm -hmm. still remain um, in certain parts, you know, of the state, like outside of that Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, Erie area. There are people who might still be receptive to, you know, not so subtle, racial in, innuendo in, in commercials that came out of the, the Kelly campaign. There are people who are still receptive to that. So I think it shows that we do still have a way to go in Pennsylvania, but you know, silver lining, it was close. And you know, who knows next time? And I think for the Democratic Party, I've, what I would take from it is, and again, this is something that I said last time about the Republicans, go hard or go home. Mm -hmm. you know, I'm not going to tamp down my message for fear of offending someone who might not agree. If you don't agree, you don't agree. Don't agree over there. I'll be over here with the people who haven't been spoken to. I'll be over here with the people who no one's ever come to talk to them at all. Mm -hmm. I'll go expand my base rather than trying to pick from your base because there's more people who aren't voting than people who are voting for Republicans. Excellent. Let's go over there. Let's go mine the, the areas that, that haven't been touched. Mm -hmm. That's where the gold is. These wells over here there's nothing else over there. So I think going forward, the Democratic Party has to maybe rethink its strategy of trying to cherry pick from Trump supporters. Mm -hmm. Let them be. Let's go over here and, and, and get the people who aren't su supporting anyone. Let's tell them our story. Let's, let's explain to them why they should be making a choice and more importantly, why that choice should be us. I believe that what Dina Nicola did for this race in this race is pretty much the same in my, in my mind at least for what John Persinger is, what John Persinger did for the mayor's race. You know, you go into some of these races and in your mind is almost a concession. Well, you know, this particular party is gonna win or there's an incumbent or what have you. But I think that Dean Nicola pushed the envelope so much that it made people say, hmm, well, you know something, hard work, you know, really trying to, to, to galvanize not just your base, but to bring in new people. There's a shot for pretty much anybody who's willing to roll their sleeves up and work it. Robert, would you agree with that? I did. I was impressed with his ads appealing to veterans, appealing to, uh, she said, to Trump voters, although she doesn't agree with that strategy. Um, he, he worked very hard, but so did, you know, the congressman and his team. It was a very hard-fought competitive race, and that's the way most elections probably should be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what would you say to uh, voters overall as you look at the evidence now presented for the midterms in terms of, you know, it being a hopeful time or what have you? What do you say to to voters. Let's talk to the ones that still didn't show up to vote. I did a barbershop mm -hmm. segment and we still ran into people who didn't vote. What do you say to those people after these midterms? And it's important to show up not just in the presidential year. Show up and vote every 
every two years, or especially in local elections every year. Last year, there's only like, what, 33% turnout or something here, and that's going to be next year. Um, it's important to stay engaged and keep them accountable. Watch what's going on and keep your elected officials, whether at the local level or the federal level, accountable for what they said they're going to do. And speak up. Write letters, call in, be active. Mm -hmm. um, I would uh, echo that. Um, you know, when I was out... Uh, you know, <laughs> yes, I do. I'm a reasonable person. Um, so I would say, you know, when I was out um, with my voter registration and my clipboard asking people to register to vote, I heard a lot of, well, what do we get from voting? I've never seen any results. Like, why? What's, what's the big deal? I, we, what have we gotten? And, you know, so I would say to people after this election, um, if you did vote, good job, but that's not enough. Not did you vote. My question now isn't do you vote. My question is what do you do the day after you vote? Mm -hmm. What do you do the week after you vote? Because I think people have this idea like I voted, therefore a magical unicorn that saves the day is supposed to pop out of the sky. No, <laughs> voting isn't the end of the race. Voting is the beginning. After you vote, are you showing up to the council meetings? Are you showing up to school board meetings? Are you engaged? Are you calling your senator? Do you know who your senator is? Do you know who your rep House of Representative um representative is? Do you know uh, the importance of this census that's coming up in 2020 and how that is going to affect the lives of everyone when it comes to, to redistricting? So I would say, yes, vote. But um, as we say in improv, it's yes and. So yes, vote and do those other things. So mm -hmm. that would be my message um, to voters. Like, good job on voting. We're going to clap that up. But <laughs> We're not throwing a party just yet. Mm -hmm. There's still work to be done. Okay, so let's push that a step further before I, I let both of you go. What's the, from what you've seen, in terms of registering people to vote, because now voter registration is key right now, or engaging voters. I'll, I'll use a less technical term because it really is about bringing people into the process. What have you seen or what do you believe are the most effective ways to bring people in because we have to get away from this thing of, okay, it's time for an election. Let us now go talk about bringing people in and, and appreciating the value of voting. This has to be a year round conversation. What are the best methods in your minds to get people engaged that are apathetic right now? Robert, we'll start with you. Well, I would say you have to go to them. Then you're not doing for them to come to you. You have to be out there in the community um, offering opportunities. People to get registered at community events, festivals, social events, uh, big things going on there has to be a, a tent there or a table there where you can actually have a place for people to take action and sign up right then and there but you have to go out among the people go to them because they're not going to come to you mm. um and i would i would say in addition to that um just the way i said that if you're a voter um you have to stay engaged throughout the process the same thing with elected officials you getting elected is not the end of the story. You mm -hmm. getting, the elect getting elected is not like, okay, we can have a party, it's done. No, the same way the citizen has to stay engaged and come to meetings and make phone calls, you as the elected person, you can't just disappear and then show back up in four years saying, oh, hey, remember me? No, it's a, it's a symbiotic process. The citizen has to remain engaged, but so does the, the, the public servant. We have to know you. We have to see you in the community. Um, in order to make us want to be engaged, you have to engage with us. Like It's like any other relationship. It can't be one-sided. It has to be um, both ways. And in, in addition to that, I think what we learned is you have to run better candidates. We're Amen. tired of these cookie-cutter, pretending to be perfect. We all know you're not perfect. And the thing is, 
People don't really care if you're imperfect. We are all imperfect, but just be honest about it and embrace that. Give us authenticity. And I think that's what we can learn from this race. All these women who are first time runners who have no experience, but they had passion. They had a desire that was palpable that you could feel. Mm -hmm. That is what is gonna get people engaged because when people see you trying to be perfect, they don't see themselves because mm -hmm. they know they're not perfect. But when they see you saying, listen, I used to be a flight attendant. I don't have any experience, but I know I'm tired of this pothole and I've been calling down here for three years about it. If you're not gonna do it, I'm gonna get it done. Mm. People can relate to that. People can say, I see her, she's me. I like that, I wanna buy it. Also known as I wanna vote for it. So better candidates. So I'm, Robert, I'll let you close out on this before uh, she ends because that is let the record show. That's the one thing I've been saying about Trump. I said, okay, even if you don't like the way he broke the mold and many people don't. He has broken the mold in terms of you have to be this type of person to run for president. If I had to glean anything positive from this entire experience, for me, that's one of the key positives I see from, from Trump's presidency. Mm -hmm. You were shaking your head when Nikki said this cookie cutter, um, you know, image that we've been putting out there. We've got to get away from that. Add to that before we close out. Well, I... I was here saying preach. <laughs> I, I, you know, we do need to see more people running for office for the first time. And it, it doesn't have to be necessarily from the legal or political profession or someone, uh, you know, you were on somebody else's staff or you were a career politician from another office before running for a higher office. But we also want candidates who will work. I mean, you can't just say, I'm going to spend a few thousand dollars, buy some signs, go to the houses that have flags on them, go door to door, and that'll be enough. It doesn't happen. They lost again. Um, we need candidates who are willing to run, who are willing to put themselves out there, can be from any profession, really, depending on what office you're running for, but also be willing to work. You have to be willing to fundraise. You have to be willing to bust your butt going door to door making the calls. You have to have people in your campaign supporting you and help that you can't do it by yourself. Mm. Robert J. Yates, Nikki Page, thank you so much. Nikki, we're going to hold you over for the next segment. Robert, thank you for coming on. We look forward to seeing you again. Okay. In these midterms, um, there were so many historic victories all throughout the country. We wanted to chronicle some of those going into the next segment because um, especially with the entire girl power movement, we've seen historic gains. You want to pull this up on the screen for just a second. It 20 candidates that made history in the 2018 midterm elections. So this first one is one that I really love. Ayanna Presley, Massachusetts first black congresswoman, ran unopposed. We can go back for that for just a second. Ran unopposed after beating a 10-time a, a incumbent for her race. That's the very definition of black girl magic. You see all of these <laughs> different candidates listed here throughout. So there were so many firsts throughout the country that it is uh, very encouraging to see. If you look at number six, uh, Sharice Davis and Deb Holland, first Native American women elected to Congress, that one I think warms my heart more than any because obviously there are so many stories attached to Native America. They were here before all of us. So <laughs> to see them have historic firsts is something that I'm particularly proud of. Very and so things. if you want to, uh, to bring attention to just a few more of these as we have our next guest come forward. If we have just a, a few more of these we want to bring attention to. Um, Young Kim, first Korean-American woman elected to Congress. Um, you've got Kaylin Haywood, young man. But what I love about that is Kaylin is the youngest legislator in U.S. history in the Wisconsin State Assembly. He's 19 years old. If that doesn't give you hope, I don't know what will. And Letitia James, first black woman attorney general of New York, Nikki speaking a little bit about down ballot um, 
and, and the encouragement there. So we are just uh, so excited to see so much history made over the last midterm elections. So we'll welcome in this segment uh, a couple of new guests. We've got Rebecca Stein, who is the executive director of the Idea Fund. Rebecca, welcome to the show. And we've got Ms. Sonia Baez, the host of Chatting with Sonia and producer of that wonderful segment we started with. Sonia, welcome to the show. Thank you All right, so I want to refer to an article from March 18, 2017, before we start this segment, because in that article, it was on Vox, uh, was by Sarah Cliff. At that time, it talked about for, that, for the past two decades, the U.S. had sunk from 52nd in the world for women's representation to 104th today, that being 2017. And the year prior to that, the U.S. had dropped nine places from 95th to 104th among 190 countries. And I wanted to preface this conversation with that because, you know, we, we still have this idealistic image of the United States and our flaws. We, we run from our flaws. We stuff them under the rug. We stuff them in the closet. And when you point things out like this, some people will still look you in the face and this is the greatest nation in the world. I'm not saying the nation isn't great, but the things that we have to work on, you have to own. And those were the numbers from two years ago. Enter today an article for the New York Times, and I want to set this up well outside of what you just saw on the screen. 35 new women, 35 new women win house seats, 27 of which are replacing men, right? They joined 66 female incumbents who were reelected. And so the list goes on because I know that you ladies want to extract a couple of things from that. But in 1992, they looked at that as the year of the woman. And at that time, they added 24 new members to the House, um, 23 new members to the House, uh, 24 and, 30 and 35. This one is 23 and 66 incumbents. So although 92 was the year of the woman, quote unquote, this year, this year, women really, really came on strong. So we'll start with Sonia. Sonia, you had that clip and Nikki was one of your esteemed guests on that clip. What was the impetus behind that? Because obviously the, um, the influence of women was front and center for this. It was kind of like a prediction on your part, putting that video out. Well, actually we knew it was a strong time in year for women. Uh, the Doug Jones, uh, the whole process with that. The women came out and we just decided that we do have a voice and we have something to say and, and we're gonna say it. So I just thought like this video could show us unity and strength and when we go to the poll, it, it matters and it shouldn't be a secret nor a surprise that when women go to the poll, we're strong there, we have something to say and we're utilizing our voices. Mm -hmm. It's just that simple. Rebecca, you aren't new to this political process. Correct. <laughs> so I can only imagine it was probably a fun time for you at home as you watched that, wherever you watched the returns. Give, give us a thought of what you're thinking now that all the evidence is in. Um, well, I mean, it's an exciting time, definitely. But I still look, I still look at it like we're still wildly underrepresented. Mm. Um, I mean, I think women make up 21% of the House and 19% of the Senate. Like, I think the numbers should be you know, drastically higher still today. I mean, I, I love the movement and I hope it continues. And I really do believe for better or worse, Trump had a lot to do with that because mm -hmm. women finally felt empowered and they got angry and they wanted to do things that they knew that that should be achieved for their respective communities and states. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's an exciting time. Mm -hmm. Nikki, you already touched on these returns a little bit. Add to that a little bit. Well, um, yeah, again, I, I concur with, um, my fellow panelists here that it is encouraging. It's great to see that women do have a lot to say. Um, and I think women 
being at the table, it's gonna change the conversation. When lawmakers are making laws about things that affect women's bodies, women's choices, women's health care. How are you how are you even having that conversation without a woman in the room? Like that's mind-boggling to me. And in addition to there being um, women, these a lot of these women elected have been veterans, so they have military experience. You have women who are doctors who understand science and that it's real. So when you're engaging in those conversations, whether it be about Medicare, healthcare, um, you know, uh, women's health care. There's someone in the room who has actual real world experience as living, a lived experience as a woman, but also a scientific and a medical background. So I think that that is going to have a definite um, impact in, in shaping policy and at least making sure that the right questions are being asked mm -hmm. and, and that the perspective of a woman is being heard. And I think I think we'll all be better for it. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of a lot of these benchmark firsts that I found impressive. I know not too long ago we did a show on the DREAM Act and immigration and things along those lines. We had a young man named Luis on the show and he unpacked his story. But to look at New York's first dreamer elected to public office, Catalina Cruz, it says as a Democrat and former House attorney, Cruz came to the United States from Columbia at age nine without papers. And she only gained citizenship after marrying her husband in 2009. You know, so once again, all of these historic firsts, as you look, at this history being made, is there a particular candidate race that um, moved you individually? Sonia, we'll start with you. Of all of these firsts, which one resonates with you the most? Um, I, Johanna Hayes, uh, she came to mind because for me, she was very relatable. I mean, her platform was she was an educator and uh, she was running to improve schools and um, Another thing, she grew up in an addictive family, and uh, she was raised by her grandmother. And uh, just the normal, everyday issues that we face, uh, this young lady had all of that. And uh, one quote that she had, uh, she was raised by her grandmother amid uh, addiction and uh, poverty. So she said something to the fact, like to her students, um, you don't get to complain. And uh, if you see a problem within your community, then you are to fix it. So like I said, she grew up uh, no different from us. She had no political experience and uh, she ran on passion and she wanted to make a change and a difference. So, and like I said, her, her courage and strength and confidence, she got right out there. She was passionate about education and uh, it moved me, it did, mm. because there wasn't any magic potion or anything. She ran strictly off passion and ready to get out there and make some things happen. So mm. I was quite impressed. Excellent. Rebecca, you're the one that resonated with you the most. You know, they, uh, in some way they all did. There was, it was just a year of first, which was so wonderful to mm -hmm. see. But um, one of them, Marsha Blackburn, she currently serves in the U.S. House. She was elected as Tennessee's first female senator ever. They've never had a female senator before. So mm -hmm. I always find those first very intriguing, whether it's demographically or um, whether it's male or, or female. And um, the state has only elected six total women to the House of Representatives ever in the course of its history. So, and the other one is Alexandria Cortez, the youngest one that was elected. Um, not that I'm one for age, but I think it's nice to see them step up and get into the game. And I hope it encourages more of the younger demographic to get involved and step into the game too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I, I usually like to follow the rules. I know you said one, but I'm going to uh, piggyback and say um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez out of the Bronx. Um, that, that, I think, means a lot for that reason, for her being 29 years old and being the youngest person elected um, to the House of Representatives. But also even more than that, that thing that I was talking about, about authenticity and honesty and truth and not being afraid of your truth, even though people are saying, ah! Socialism, that's a bad word, you can't say it. She said it, she said it every day 5,000 times and she meant it and people voted for her and she was a complete outsider. I don't think she had that much you know, support from the Democratic Party. I don't even think they took her seriously and she unseated the person who was next in line to be Speaker of the House. She came out of nowhere and she did that with passion and honesty and truth and I think that is that can be instructive for the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. um, and then also I would say Ayanna Presley, um, a woman who um, just her her mission and her quote saying that those who are closest to the pain should be closest to the power. Now that's a message. Mm -hmm. That's a message. That's a winning message, and we can all understand what that means as a as a woman, as a black woman. And I believe um, you know she has um, come out and talked about being a a sexual assault survivor. So her being in the room is going to change the conversation. And then lastly, I would say Lucy McBath out of Georgia, uh, the sixth district. She is the mother of Jordan Davis, who was murdered you know at a gas station because he was black, and someone who was white decided he was playing his music too loud mm -hmm. and shot him and that was her son and so being a mother of the movement and having experienced pain like that she took that pain and said you know what I'm gonna change this and she ran for Congress at first time running she won she's a former flight attendant and now she I believe holds the seat that used to be mm -hmm. at one time Newt Gingrich's so that that is in in many ways the American story of mm -hmm. someone being able to to, to make it because you know they took the initiative and they took the chance. So I think those three really um, mean a lot to me and they tell the story in many different ways. Peel back the veil on what this conversation looks like. I mean, these are three vocal women you know, who are all powerhouses in their own right, very talented women. When you are with a group of women having this conversation and discussion, mm -hmm. you know, Rebecca, start us off. When this, when this conversation happens behind closed doors, what are some of the things that you're hearing? What are some of the points that you're making sure to, to, to point out? Because you even started this segment saying, yeah, it was a lot of history. We need more still. Right. And I like that you came out the box with that because we don't want to become complacent. What does this conversation sound like? And you ladies can chime in on this wherever you feel comfortable. Yeah, no, I mean, the conversation is obviously ongoing. I think it's important to stress, again, that we still have a lot of um, changes to make. Um, we've come a long way, but women historically don't like to run because it is not a pretty game. I mean, having done it twice, you know, even at the local level, it's, it's a lot of stress. I mean, and it's not, you know, we're not as... I mean, we are tough, but we don't go out and, and run smear um, campaigns as a lot of other you know, campaigners might. It's really hard. We like to stay positive. There was a woman, Amy McGrath. She did not win. Um, she, was, she ran for uh, the House, I believe, but she lost to a guy named Andy Barr. Andy ran a huge smear campaign on her, and she chose to stay positive the entire way. This is in Kentucky. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, she was a brilliant woman. She was the first female Marine to fly an FA-18 into combat. She served in the Naval Academy. She had 20 years in the Marine Corps. She was an absolutely stunning woman who just, and every time they told her to run, you know, a tougher campaign, she said, nope, I'm staying positive. I'm staying ahead. And, unfortunately, it was she had come out at some point saying that she was a little more liberal than, than her opponent, and she 
to definitely lean left. And that's what ended up hurting her because Mm -hmm. that's still part of rural America that we still need to get into and make more make more of a change. So it's an ongoing education. Um, and it's for, you know, for us to understand that we do need to be able to step up and, and be able to take this because we have so much more to offer. I mean, we, we bring in more money for federal spending. We introduce more policy. Um, women make a lot of great strides when, once they get into office. Mm, so. Sonia, on your show, you interviewed one of the local powerhouses in, in terms of um, women in politics, Joyce Savacchio. Mm-hmm. What, what does this conversation sound like for you when you and your, you know, women friends are in the room? discussing the issue. Well, um, I would piggyback off of Rebecca. We, we have a lot to say, and we're not doing it as brash and as harsh, but like she said, we're not going to run smeared campaigns, and we're not going to be negative in the process, but we run with compassion and integrity, and when women are to the table, we get things done. We're organized. We are I mean, even just from being um, women like moms, we get things done. We run our families. We run businesses. And when we come together collectively, we are able to get some things done. So what we talk about behind closed doors is like how Nikki was saying, um, how dare men sit around and think they can make decisions for our bodies? We should be able to decide when we would like to have a family or choose not to. But I, I just couldn't even imagine a group of men sitting around having a conversation mm-hmm. saying what I should do with my body. Mm-hmm. It makes absolutely no sense. Mm-hmm. So when we get together, we get things done. We're poignant, we're confident, and we will get in there and get to get the job done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when, so. when you, before we swing it to Nikki, when you talk about the history of anything in this country, I mean, mm-hmm. people look at it oftentimes, whether it's, I don't care if it's African Americans, Native Americans, mm-hmm. women, there's always, you know, when people talk about a particular issue, I say, well, what's beneath the surface on that issue? And you talk about women and elections and everything else. You said, how dare men tell us what to do with our bodies? Whether you agree or disagree with any policies dealing with what she's saying, mm-hmm. there's a long history of women being treated like people's property in this country. And we are absolutely not. Not, right. And so sometimes you hear that pushback in the conversation. Nikki, chime in on this. Um, so... The things that have been coming up in conversations that I've been having with um, my friends, people I went to law school with or college with, um, is number one, just kind of like the coincidence or maybe not the coincidence that all of these women will be um, taking their seats in 2019, which will be the 100 year anniversary of the constitutional amendment allowing women to vote. So that's kind of interesting that we're on 100 years of being allowed to vote, and now you have more than 100 women um, going into Congress for the first time. So that's been coming up. Also, you know, my friends, we're always like critically thinking. So, you know, while everyone else is having the party, we're like, okay, now let's dissect. What, where can we do better? And so what's been coming up is, how women have to be twice as good as a man to get the same job. Mm. And oftentimes in in regular jobs don't get paid the same amount of money. So when you Mm -hmm. look at, in Georgia, Kemp versus um, Abrams, Abrams, Abrams. when you put their resumes next to one another, he has a bachelor's degree in agriculture, which no shade to farmers, like that's important. Mm -hmm. But this woman, you know, is an attorney, you know, she's a, a graduate, summa cum or magna cum laude from Spelman. She went to graduate school. She was something, I don't know what it was called, a Truman Scholar or a, not a Rhodes Scholar, but something super prestigious. Mm-hmm. And still, she had to have all that just to compete with mm-hmm. a white man with a farming degree. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. that's been, like, let's dissect that and what does that mean? And then finally, you know, it's a sore subject, but 
the majority of white women still choosing to uh, vote for proximity to power and white privilege over progress. And so when you see in that race with Kemp and Abrams or down in Florida with Gillum, when you see crazy, one of those races, like 70 something percent of white women mm -hmm. voted for a candidate who had like monkey calls in, in the background of robocalls, which suggests to me that that percentage of white women are mm -hmm. maybe not racist, but not turned off by it enough to not vote for that candidate, which kind of means you might be racist. <laughs> so, you know, those are some things that we need to kind of dig in and kind of engage, like what's going on there, my sisters? Like you want us to come to the women's march and wear the pink hats and be all on one accord, but then when it's time for you to show up for us, it's kind of like crickets, tumbleweeds, mm. disappearing acts. So now, we need to kind of dig in on that. <laughs> I want to unpack a couple of things you just said. <laughs> First thing I want to unpack is the, the Abrams-Kemp race. You know, I, I was a resident of Georgia for 10 years and went to college in Georgia. The, the, the Confederacy, all of that racism is still right in front of your face in Georgia. People look at Atlanta as this, this, um, this bastion of black success, and it is. That says nothing about the entire state of Georgia. So I won't rehash a lot of things that you've already said, but to have an African-American woman come that close says something. Yeah. But I want to talk about the battle that they're dealing with down there in terms of this voter registration because Georgia has one of the strictest laws on having this exact name match, you know, on your identification. This comes from an article by Amber Phillips in uh, the Washington Post, actually. And it says, the day before the voter registration deadline in Georgia last week, the Associated Press reported 53,000 voter applications were on hold because the names on record didn't exactly match their voter application. So for me, it could be uh, my mother's maiden name is Banks. So I, let's just say it's Marcus Banks Atkinson, Marcus Banks hyphen Atkinson. If I bring an ID and the ID says Marcus Banks Atkinson without the hyphen, ah, your, 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 your ballot's on hold. It's that strict. The only state comparable is Florida. Imagine that, <laughs> right? Two states define themselves contesting things right now. So I thought that was fascinating when you bring that up. What that conjures up is, you know, you had a law, you know, in 2013, Supreme Court stripped away the oversight power. There was a law that was brought in to kind of babysit states down south over these types of things, because there's a lot of history of blacks being disenfranchised to vote. It was turned over in 2013. They took that oversight away. And here we are. You know, so it goes back to the argument of the lot. There's a lot of work to be done yet. But I want to circle back again. Black women and white women, got to go there, got to go there. Overwhelmingly, the women elected were um, Democratic. And even still of that group of Democrats, when you add the new women to the incumbents, overwhelmingly still liberal. I had someone ask me, and I'll pose this question to you, as a white woman, what makes you stay voting Republican right now? They Rebecca, I thought they asked me that question. <laughs> what would make what would make a white woman stay Republican in this in this environment? Rebecca, softball pitch. Yeah. Only white sister on the show. You know, take that on, and then you two can chime in on that. The two-party system is really maddening to me. Okay, because I, at the core values of each, it we have devolved so much from each side that I have always been uh, a person for the candidate, not for the party, always. 
And unfortunately, because of the way things have gone historically, these candidates keep devolving to either side because they want to reach their base and they want to get their votes. So we don't really get a true sense of the ones that don't make it to office if they actually were more centrist or if they were just what they were doing in order to win the election. So, I mean, I don't, I never vote straight ticket. I, I did this time around, um, but I didn't actually just go in and, and pull that lever. I want to go through every time and make sure that I'm choosing the person who's going to be a best representation for our community as a whole. So, I mean, it just depends for me. It just depends on who it is. Mm -hmm. Sonia, rectify, rectify this for me because I know that your segment dealt exclusively with African-American women and African-American women are making their mark right now. But when you go through these historic firsts, you know, again, we're pointing out Korean, you know, Native American, Latino. What's what's your Latina? What's the um, you know, what's your sense in terms of women when you look at this? Um, how much should women be trying to work together on this? Um, all of that thing. I think we should absolutely be working together. It doesn't matter what the race is. I mean, we're women first. And I we we do notice that the uh, majority of the women, white women, Caucasian women, they tend to side with their Republican husbands. And it does make you wonder, like, are, are they doing this because this is the way that they keep white privilege going? Mm -hmm. Or are they participating just with their husbands so they can keep their positions and, mm -hmm. and continue business as usual? But like Nikki was saying, like, you, you want to come together and you want to put women all together. But are we really in sync? because the numbers are so far off. And how that's happening, I mean, like I said, is it just to keep white privilege going? Or is it just that, I mean, I, I really can't tell you what's the difference. I don't know how and why they would do that. Because like I said, when you come together as women, we all have the same issues. We all have the same, um, we all have the same fight, I should say, as minorities. And uh, for us to be so separate in that mm. area, it's, it's baffling to me, quite honestly. Just to piggyback on that, women are our own worst critics, especially to other women. Mm. I mean, and that's in every field. Mm -hmm. It's not just politics. Mm -hmm. it's, in, it's in every arena. I've seen it throughout the course of my career. And I'm not really quite sure why it is, because mm -hmm. we should be a more succinct community. But I have seen women, uh, you know, sometimes far more than men, you know, have scarring effects on situations in my life. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's an amazing thing. Yeah, I heard Dr. Laura say one time on the show, she talked about stay-at-home moms. She said no one's harder on the stay-at-home mom than the working mom. And she, she went into that very same topic. I want to pull up a photo real quick before we swing it to Nikki, because obviously I thought about you when I saw this in Texas. Uh -oh, yes, uh -oh. in Texas. Yeah. Yeah. Hashtag black girl magic, right? Yep. 19... 19 women, the Houston 19, they're calling them, Harris County, third largest county in Texas. And as, um, as a father of a young woman who studied law, you know, and seeing, seeing a woman, an African-American woman sitting across from me who is an attorney, was there a special feeling when you saw this? Absolutely, um, because, you know, practicing, I was an assistant district attorney in the Bronx for almost five years. Um, so I was in court all day, every day, the grand jury, presenting cases, doing trials, arraigning cases. Um, you know, often, you would think Bronx, New York, 
bastion of multiculturalism and diversity, right? That's mm. what you would think. But I can't tell you on how many days I would go in and the only black people in the courtroom would be me and the defendant. Um, the bailiff would be white, all the other attorneys would be white, the stenographer's white, the judge is white. And so, um, you know, it, it would make me feel some type of way often. Um, so I think, you know, people who are in the dominant culture often, you know, don't know what it feels, they don't know what that feels like. Because when you're white, you don't ever have to be in a room where you're the only white person. If you do, it's because you choose to. Whereas when you're black, there are times where you have to be the only black person it's in the room. When you're going to, you know, city agencies or a bank, or there are many times when you're the only black person in the room and you have to be because you need mm -hmm. this service and this is the only place you can get it. And so I think it says something when a defendant can walk in the courtroom and not feel alone mm -hmm. and not feel completely antagonized as soon as they walk in the room. And I mean, in my opinion, I think women are amazing lawyers just because women are great communicators and so much of the law is about communicating. So, um, and also having been a prosecutor, having, um, again, a lived experience, when you have most of your criminal defendants coming in front of you are black or brown, um, but all the people making the decisions don't live in that community, mm -hmm. are not from that culture, don't understand, you know, what things mean. I used to, people would come to me and be like, he said, you know, he blacked out, but I don't understand if he blacked out, how could he understand this? I'm like, blackout doesn't mean literally blackout. It means he got upset. Mm -hmm. So there's literal cultural disconnect that goes on in the legal system that that works to the detriment of black and brown people so having people who understand what it's like in black and brown families who understand extended families and okay yeah you might have said this was your cousin and they really weren't not your cousin but you weren't lying in your mind y'all grew up together that's mm -hmm. your cousin to you that's not a lie mm -hmm. so having someone who understands cultural um you know specifics it matters in in the course of a case and in the course of of, of prosecuting law and i think that having black women on the bench um, is gonna be definitely helpful for the people of that community. I spoke to a friend of mine about this very topic and when I saw all of these black women elected to the bench, you know, this friend of mine said, well, you yourself pointed out, Marcus, that there are areas that where the, the population of African-Americans and Latino are very large, like a city like Atlanta. So let me help you understand something though. You take a city like Atlanta, that doesn't mean it's absolute. What do I mean by that? That means all the judges in Atlanta aren't black. All the police officers aren't black. All the bankers aren't black. There are areas in this country where not just the population, but all the decision makers are white. Mm -hmm. Now, that's, that's significant. So I told this person, so, you know, even if you live as a white man in an all-black town, the people who make all the decisions for you are not going to be all black. Mm -hmm. But you can move to an area where literally not just the population, but the that means something when you're worried about your application being pushed through at the bank and every banker is white, when you're worried about, am I going to jail and the judge and the bailiff and everybody's white, that's home court advantage like no other. So when I see a story like this, it makes me think, yes, the everyday affairs mm -hmm. of people mm -hmm. are now being determined by people of color. Rebecca, I know with the idea fund, you are encouraging or trying to support uh, minority female entrepreneurs. That means something mm -hmm. to your organization. First of all, tell us why, and then segue into what can we do to get more of our young women involved locally in this process? Well, because it's so majorly underrepresented 
up underrepresented. I mean, small business is becoming the backbone of our society moving forward. And I think that we need to encourage more entrepreneurial thinking. I mean, we're raised to do a trade or go to or go to college, but nobody, you know, anytime you thought outside of the box, it'd be like, no, 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 we can't do that. But we need more of that because every, with technology today, I mean, every business model has been broken down over the course of the last several years. So they, everything needs to be reinvented. We live in a risk a risk-taking society now. We have to be malleable for these types of changes. And we need to see more women and underrepresented groups step up into this, into these spotlights. It's very, it's a daunting process. I mean, it's, it was daunting for me to start a business and I had the wherewithal and all the resources right in front of me. So that's the other reason why I want to see this happen is because I want to make sure that these individuals have access to these types of things too and know where to go. And if they don't know where to go, they know they have somebody to talk to who can tell them where to go. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, and that's the future of our America. I mean, these populations are the ones that are going to help our communities grow. Right. So we need more of them to step up and, and be uh, be in their own business. Mm-hmm. Sonia, I'll let you I'll let you get the ball rolling on getting more of our women, our young ladies involved here in Erie. You know, what can we do to start home growing some of these representatives that we need to see more of? Well, actually, um, like she's putting the service out there and we're here today talking about that. And we can also start um, in high school, junior high, just with the uh, career, um, having leadership go to the schools and talk to the young women about that. And uh, just start with the uh, mindset that, like she said, you know, college may not be for everybody. And um, the entrepreneurship, is, it is important, and it's good for local businesses and local economies. So what we want to do is just, like, have a think tank, think tank I'm sorry, like, um, I'm sorry, oh, my God, Rebecca's, I'm sorry, like a think tank like uh, Rebecca's, and uh, just get the information out there, because if they don't know, they wouldn't know who to contact and stuff like that. So Mm -hmm. she's making that easy. But I I think we should start in high school and even visit some of the local colleges and universities to see if we could kind of curb some of the businesses, some of the business mindsets. So Mm -hmm. that's what I think. Yeah, because I see results like this. And my first thought was you've got women's organizations in Erie Mm -hmm. thinking who's tying down our young women and having this conversation? Who's Who's bringing this conversation to the classroom to the, the youth centers, the neighborhood centers, and just being intentional on, okay, maybe you didn't pay attention to the news, young lady. Let's talk about this. <laughs> Who's doing that? I don't know, but I'm hoping that effort is going on. Nikki, you've got a first cousin who also serves as an attorney here locally. Yes, yes. Right? So when, when you think about you know, being intentional to develop judges, lawyers, politicians, you know, what should we be doing more of if you've seen anything that's being done? Um. I think it starts um, sooner than high school. I think it starts in your primary education and it starts with representation. So I think a problem in Erie, as far as like inspiring people to think outside the box or to, to, to shoot farther and to reach higher, is the fact that, um, what are there, like nine people of color teaching in, in the Erie School District when something like 60% of the student population is black or brown? That sends a message when you're going to school, the same way it does in the courtroom, when you walk in and the only people who look like you are the other criminals or defendants or accused, it says something to a child going to school every day and the only people who are teaching me don't look like me. Mm -hmm. 
And whether it's, it's, it's intentional or not, that cultural disconnect matters. When you live out in the county, you live out in Fairview, you live out in Warren, but you come to the Lower East Side to teach, you don't understand these children. These children don't understand you. These children don't respond to you in the same way they would respond to someone who looks like them, who understands their experience, who, who understands what they're saying when they're talking and they're not talking the Queen's English. And I think having a more diverse educational system would, would work wonders for this city and in inspiring children and making children be in, actually engaged in education and wanting to come to school and, and having someone who can communicate to them and inspire them um, in a way that someone that they don't relate to really can't. And, and there have been studies shown that this cultural disconnect causes additional problems by you know, singling children out and, and calling their behavior, criminalizing them mm -hmm. at such a young age. And I think that is a major problem in the city that starts, by the time you're in high school, mm -hmm. it's almost you know, too late. I think it needs to start earlier with see, having that representation. You know, Representation matters. These children need to see uh, people who are bankers or architects or engineers, accountants, lawyers, teachers, entrepreneurs, people who own their own businesses. Mm -hmm. and, and not seeing that from a young age um, is, is a problem because in other cultures where people are entrepreneurial, they see it in their families. Mm -hmm. They see it in their communities. Their uncle owns a business. They're raised to be, to be like entrepreneurs. There's, yeah, it's not like I'm going to grow up, go to college and get a job. It's like, no, I have a business. If you want a job, you can come work for me and we can keep these resources and generational wealth in our community. And that's something that I think is, is lacking specifically mm -hmm. amongst the African-American mm -hmm. um, community because, you know, we were put, pushed out of education so long that I think the generation before us really pushed, like, you mm -hmm. got to go to school, you got to go, because mm -hmm. people always want what they can't have. Mm -hmm. And so now it's to the point where it might be a detriment, like, go to school, go to school, go to school, because now you have $250,000 in loans, and now you're basically a slave to the bank, whereas if someone had said, start a business, start a business, start a business, you might be farther off than the person who went to school. I know the school like, district has has acknowledged and owned a lot of what you just unpacked, and they are intentionally going after it. The evidence is not in yet, but I'm curious to see. But you know, when you talk about that everyday conversation with um, with our kids, Rebecca, you know, and, and you two think about this as well. How much was politics? How much is politics? A conversation in your home. So we'll go back to growing up. Were there intentional discussions in your home about this? There really weren't when I was growing up. There were not intentional discussions. I mean, we talked, you know, in flippant terms, but it really didn't become a discussion. My middle sister actually worked for Senator Arlen Specter when he was when he was around. And that's really when politics kind of heated up in the household. And ever since then, I mean, it's always a topic of discussion when when we're all together. But it was, um, you know, everybody, my father went to work every single day, like got up early, came home late, you know, and it would just be family time. It wouldn't be like anything, you know, it wasn't anything over overactive in that regard. Mm -hmm. so. Sonia, what about your household? Um, we didn't discuss politics at all. Um, not, not at all. It wasn't until um, you started growing up and started paying attention to what was going on, what was lacking. Um, and then you started asking questions like, why is this and why is that? And like Nikki was saying, you know, you grow up and you see everybody everywhere, Caucasians all the time, and how are these people constantly in leadership roles and ruling and reigning over your communities and the government. So you just became aware that we don't see people that look like us. Uh, none of this is, all the people who are making decisions for us mm -hmm. are not, not us. So then that's when we started getting involved, but it was at a much later age that I started saying, hmm, how are these people ruling and reigning 
over me. I mean, how are they, are they being elected in or what's happening? So I started taking an interest on my own. So can I, let me stay with you for just a second then. So at what point, can you pinpoint when you took a keen interest in policies? Was it a particular flashpoint or was it just kind of over time? It was just over time, probably in the eighth and ninth grade, because you, you begin to become aware of like, okay, if this is our mayor, um, in the whole entire administration, there's no diversity at all. And like Nikki was saying, you don't see people who look like you. Your instructors are Caucasians. Um, you go on field trips and everybody's just Caucasian, but they're in these leadership roles. Mm -hmm. So I was just wondering, like, what are they doing different mm -hmm. to get to some of these roles? So I just took an interest mm -hmm. in it myself to say, hmm, what's going on? And a lot of these leadership roles and positions, they were political. Mm -hmm. So I, I come from a background where there wasn't very much discussion at all no. politically. Nope. And I threw that question out there because I, I guess speaking to the listeners and the viewers right now, that this is probably an area that we need to get stronger in as a mm -hmm. society, being more intentional by having the conversation in house. Nikki, I left you out of that intentionally because I know for a fact <laughs> That you she come from up. a family where that's the topic when your family comes together. Yeah. How much has that shaped you? Um, I would say that it shaped me a lot. And it was never like, okay, 6 p.m., it's time to have the politics discussion. Yeah. It was never like that. It was just, it was infused. It was part of just our way of life. And I would say it, it wasn't just we talked about politics. It was we talked about current events, current affairs, knowing what's going on in the world. CNN was always on, um, you know, talk radio was on. And it was, it was politics from the point of, or from the perspective of public service. Because there was also, you know, NAACP meetings and, you know, school board meetings. I remember growing up at NAACP meetings and school board meetings and my parent, my grandparents would make me get up at a city council meeting and like ask a question. I'd be 11, 12, and they'd make me go to the podium and ask a question. I remember at, when I was in high school, they were talking about having a curfew or something for teenagers. And they were like, okay, well, this is gonna affect you. You should have a stay. Go down there and ask a question. Find out what it is. Are you for you know the curfew or not? And I was forced to kind of like articulate my thoughts, um, think critically about things, and so it just it, it came naturally. It, it was just hmm. like walking or talking. Well, it's so funny. I think Ernest Denny from the Booker T. Washington Center was my supervisor at one point. I think he forced me to go down to that same meeting <laughs> to speak. <laughs> so listen, thank you, ladies, so much for. Joining us today in studio, Sonia Baez, uh, Rebecca Stein, and Nikki Page. We appreciate your um, giving us the information, giving us kind of a piece of your uh, outlook on this issue. Thank you so much for all the work that you're doing. Each one of you ladies are doing such important work. You know, there's a great deal of admiration and respect, and I know that these are women that young girls look at and say, wow, she's doing it. I can do it, too. And as a father of daughters, let me say thank you. Thanks for Thank having you. me. Yes, yes. You have been watching or listening to Next on WQLN. I'm your host, Marcus Atkinson. Tune in next time as we approach more issues that uh, keenly affect the community. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, next time you can tune in at uh, 814 Next on Twitter. You can still tune in and have your say. Uh, next on WQLN Radio on Facebook. Like the page. Have your say on there as well. We'll see you next month, fourth Sunday of the month at 4 p.m., 91.3 FM. WQLN. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.